0: Hello and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Thank you for joining me today for Part 3 of Boss Tom Pendergast's Epic Saga of Dominion in Kansas City. This is your first time listening to Homegrown KC. I strongly urge you to pause here, go back, and listen to Parts 1 and 2. For those of you who have been following the series from the beginning, I am so sorry that this episode is so late. I can't even blame it on the coronavirus this time. I've just been really busy with other things. Life has gotten in the way a lot lately. Um, But you know, it's summer. It's nice outside, we're going to be happy, we're going to get this done, it's all good. Alright, so, now that this episode is out, um, the next episode will be the last in Pendergast's life. It actually is partially written at the moment, so I hope to get it out to you guys in a couple of weeks. Alright, on with the show. Previously on Homegrown KC, we explored Tom's rise to power in 1911, and how he used his position as alderman of the First Ward, Many businesses, and through perseverance, intimidation, and acts of goodwill, solidified his position as the boss of Kansas City by 1925. Today on Homegrown KC, Pendergast's saga continues. His unchecked and surging power in Kansas City and the nation lasted until 1932. But then everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Nah, no, I'm just kidding, sorry. I'm gonna watching Avatar since they finally put it on Netflix, and it's the best animated show of all time. Y'all ought to check it out if you haven't ever watched it. For reals, though, everything changes with the onset of the Great Depression. So I know I mentioned the creation of the city manager post at the end of the last episode, but I don't feel that I gave that section as much detail as I could have, should have, so here's some more for you. The city manager was supposed to be hired by the mayor. Obviously, that's not how it went down. McElroy was born in 1865 in Illinois. He moved to Kansas City in 1895 when he was 30 years old and opened a real estate business. Before coming to Kansas City, he had worked as a laborer, a timekeeper for the railroad, not entirely sure what that entails. He had managed a store, a bank, and even made money as a jockey. He married Mary Orbison in 1906, and they had two children together, Mary and Henry. His wife died in 1920 when she was only 41 and he never remarried. He was elected as a judge in 1922 and this could only have been with Pendergast's help. During his judgeship he often worked closely with fellow Judge Truman and eliminated the debt the county had accrued under their predecessor. Apparently when he became city manager he kicked the mayor out of his own office and took it over for himself so the manager was forced to share a tiny office with his secretary somewhere else in City hall. as city manager McElroy would be responsible for hiring city and county personnel and from the sounds of it maintaining infrastructure so he's credited with arranging for the building of the municipal auditorium, General Hospital number no. two, a new city hall, a new county courthouse and several other projects throughout the city. Now, remember way back to Big Jim in part one of this story? I know it was so long ago. He's the one who really created what we call the Pendergast machine in Kansas City. And as far as I can tell, the way that it's run under Tom is basically the same. It's not really changed, except that Tom is so much more ambitious than his brother was. Big Jim was perfectly happy to just be the ward leader of his little section. But TJ wants it all, and now he has it all. He controls the whole city. And, you know, at this point, he might as well be in control of the state as well. However, bigger means there's a lot more moving parts. Uh, It sounds like it was basically a giant pyramid during the 1930s with boss Tom at the very top. And then under him are the vice presidents of the organization, of which Truman was one. Followed by, quote, 16 ward leaders from Kansas City and, quote, eight township leaders in the rest of Jackson County, end quote. Then there's block captains, and then club members. Now, after restructuring the city's wards in 1925, we discussed that in the last episode, we end up with 16 wards, and there are 20 to 28 precincts in each ward, and each precinct has 1 to 10 block captains. So that's somewhere between 320 and 4,480 block captains that are a part of this organization. And I know that sounds extreme, but I did the math. Okay, so you have 16 wards times 20 precincts times one block captain is 320. And then on the other side of it, you have 16 wards times 28 precincts times 10 block captains is 4,480. So it's somewhere in in there. It's it's not the exact number, but somewhere in that range. These leaders included blacks and even women. Holston and Larson specified that there were 460 goats and 300 rabbit precinct captains. Now, it surprised me a little bit at first to hear that the rabbit fraction remained. But then I was like, Delora, Shannon might not be as powerful anymore. Cause Boss Tom totally destroyed him. But he's still around. So there's still rabbits. They also said that there were 6,000 paying dues members to the Jackson Democratic Club and that, quote, almost all key leaders and functionaries held public jobs, end quote, and that, sorry, this is kind of weird, quote, during designated campaign periods, they contributed up to 50% of their salaries to machine coffers, end quote. Additionally, Larson and Holston report that, quote, Both legitimate and illicit businesses paid the machine regular tribute, a sort of privately collected tax, end quote. So obviously, this system is totally rigged, and Pendergast and his political buddies are making bank. Alright, so in 1927, Pendergast established the Jackson Democratic Club's HQ at 1908 Main Street. Alright, so in 1927, Pendergast established the most famous version of the Jackson Democratic Club's H- HQ at 1908 Main Street. So the very first office, Big Jim's office, was at 17 or 716 Delaware. Um, then Big Jim passed over to Tom, and Tom moved the office to the Jefferson Hotel, which I discussed on the last episode, and then to the Gumbo Building at 8th and Walnut. But 1908 Main Street is the most well-known location. The building had two floors, and the c- club occupied the second floor, with Southwestern Linen Company below it. And Boss Tom could be found there from 6 a.m. to 12 p.m. three days a week. Most of the time, folks were lined up before he even got there. And like all the way down the sidewalk and around the corner kind of lined up. He instructed his secretary, and I'm using this in the British aristocracy kind of way of this is the person who maintains my schedule versus this is just the woman who answers the phone. Anyway, he instructed his secretary that women were always to be ushered to the front of the line. They were not to wait in the line. And if you'll remember from my last episode, in my description of his character, I said he hated small talk. Well, apparently each meeting only lasted five to ten minutes. I mean, if you're only there for three hours a day, three days a week, and you've got hundreds of people come to see you, I guess you can only afford five to ten minutes. Um, but if you wouldn't come to the point, kind of like I'm not, <laughs> he would interrupt you and send you on your way. Most of those who came to see him were job seekers, although a lot of others, you know, may have needed a loan or just come to him to make a business deal of some kind. But apparently he had a system for job seekers. He had three different colored cards that he would write a note on, then give you the note and tell you who to give it to. Red meant hire, blue meant wait, and black meant do not hire. So I get black, and I even get blue. Blue equals background check. They both start with B. But why use red for hire? Why not green for go, you know? He was also known to jump over McElroy's head. Remember McElroy, as the city manager, one of his functions is to hire people for different departments. Well, sometimes Pendergast just filled that position himself. He didn't talk to anybody else. So in 1933, the city's government budget included $450,000 a month in salary. And, oh, that's uh, for 3,750 people. And then it also included $120,000 a week for 5,000 part-time laborers. As promised in the previous episode I have some more information about TJ's company Ready Mix Concrete Co. The company was established in 1928 in partnership with Michael Ross who is a significant side character but I'm not going to discuss him in this episode you'll have to wait until part four for that. The office was located at 1908 West 25th Street and apparently this was Tom's backup HQ so if he's not at the Democratic Club HQ, he's probably here. And concrete, uh, sorry, mixed-ready concrete created a monopoly. They had 25 mixing trucks, which allowed them to mix concrete faster and with less effort. Uh, Larson and Holston said that one truck was able to mix what six to eight men could manually. So they're way more cost-effective than other companies, and they're able to underbid everyone and receive the contract. Not to mention the fact that Everybody knows who owns this company, and they don't want to piss him off by giving the job to somebody else. I mean, come on. This is known as an intimidation tactic. Later during the Depression, concrete was a staple for building projects, and not just in KC, but all across America. Alright, speaking of which, time to talk about the Great Depression. So, pretty sure everybody knows what it is, right? But do you know how it started? After living the high life during the 1920s, The stock market reached an unsustainable high. Everybody thought the economy was doing so well that more Americans than ever before started to buy stocks. And the market experienced inflation and the stocks ended up selling for more than they were actually worth. In addition to that, the stocks were often bought on credit so you didn't actually have the money to pay for it, you were gonna pay for it later. Finally, the balloon just popped, October 1929. I read of a Black Monday, a Black Tuesday, a Black Wednesday, and a Black Thursday, so named because stock prices fell so dramatically. Um, Basically, it's just a black month. One of my sources said stock prices never reached their pre-crash heights until the mid-1950s. All the money that had been funneled into the stock market and now drained out through the banks and back into the hands of the people... I picture this kind of like the bank scene in Mary Poppins, only on a much bigger scale. I don't know if that's accurate or not, that's just my mental image. According to Ohio's central history, waning wages, competing industries, quote, declining crop prices, end quote, and declining international trade due to high tariffs led up to the crash. So the crash is the final nail in the coffin, as the saying goes, and the Great Depression was on. It lasted until the mid-1930s. But it's not just in America. There was a worldwide depression. Some countries didn't even recover until after World War II. Now, during the Depression, America faced massive and unprecedented unemployment and starvation. I'm sure most, if not all, of you have seen photos from that period of just incredibly long, seemingly endless long lines of people waiting for a small bowl of soup and a hunk of bread. According to the History Channel's History of the Great Depression, 4 million American citizens became unemployed in 1930. 6 million a year later, and as many as 15 million Americans were unemployed in 1932. You'll often hear that 25% of the populace was unemployed at the height of the Depression. For comparison, America's current unemployment rate is the highest it's been since the Great Depression, it's currently at 13%. That's actually down from the 15% that it was last month. And there are Currently, over 45 million Americans that have filed for unemployment since the pandemic began, and that number's still going up. Now, you're thinking why? Well, even though the shutdown's over, and the economy is reopening, people—not everyone, but a lot of people—are still not going out, or they're not going out very much, because newsflash: the pandemic is still ongoing, and so businesses are still struggling. For example, just a couple of days ago, I saw a headline that a major hotel in Kansas City was going to lay off a few hundred employees. Back in late March, uh, I even heard a report on NPR that some experts were predicting as much as 30% of our society would be without a job before the pandemic ended. Now, with overall unemployment percentage beginning to decrease, this may not actually happen, and thank God, but we aren't fully out of the woods yet. I hope you all realize that we are very likely still on our way towards a depression of some kind or i mean we're already in a recession this is going to reverberate for a while this is why we need universal health care and a livable wage all right sorry not sorry for getting off track but my rant is over i promise just wash your hands and wear a face mask in public all right i promise i promise well done let's get back to pendergast he's way more interesting and incredibly active during the depression In Kansas City, just as he managed to protect the city from prohibition, he also helped free the city from most of the effects of the Depression. Now, several sources make it sound as though Tom single-handedly saved the city with something called the 10-year plan. It's basically the New Deal, but on a smaller scale. So, the New Deal was a nationwide series of fiscal reforms and public works projects created by President FDR to help Americans and boost the economy during the Depression, well, the 10-year plan—sorry, uh, 10-year plan—actually predated the New Deal by two years. However, the Committee of 1,000, also known as the Civic Improvement Committee, was officially responsible for creating the 10-year plan. Now, I say officially because the committee, which began at the end of Mayor Beach's tenure, was expanded by Mayor Smith in 1930. From 160 men and women to 960. And, you know, a committee of a thousand sounds better than a committee of 960. Um, and it's chaired by Conrad Mann, who was an associate of Pendergast's. So Pendergast was assuredly a part of the plan. Uh, he may even helped develop it, but he didn't do it alone. Now, I have conflicting sources here. Holston and Larson say that the bond to fulfill the plan was equal to $39.5 million but PendergastKC.com says it was only $32 million um, if it was closer in size I would I probably wouldn't have quibbled over but $7 million is kind of a lot regardless the bond is gathered from GOP businessmen in KC and it was used to build City Hall which at the time was the tallest City Hall in the nation with 32 stories I don't know if it still is or not Uh, It was also used in renovations of Brush Creek, the construction of the county courthouse, the municipal auditorium, police headquarters, and paving of rural roads in Jackson County. Basically, everything I mentioned earlier that McElroy received credit for came from the 10-year plan. And, of course, all the contracts, almost all the contracts, were given to machine-owned or affiliated construction companies like ReadyMix. So, most of the money was going back to Boston. It's all cyclical. Alright, so 1932 was an election year. Uh, Real quick, side note, I don't know if I mentioned this or not. I don't think I have. But, beginning in 1920, Missouri was, quote, the seventh largest state in population and electoral votes. Bigger than California or Michigan, end quote. Now, that's kind of hard to imagine in our more modern elections, but there you have it. Missouri was absolutely essential for presidential elections. You had to win the electoral vote in Missouri in order to win at the national level. So, 1932 was one of Pendergast's most influential years on the national level. He controlled Kansas City. He basically controlled the state of Missouri. He He had helped elect the governor and senators. And this year, he became the leader of Missouri's delegation to the Democratic National Convention, which was held in Chicago. According to Holston and Larson, Pendergast intended to support James A. Reed uh, for president at the convention. You may remember Reed from Part 1 of Pendergast. Um, Tom and Big Jim had helped get him elected to mayor in 1900. Well, he then became senator in 1910 and was re-elected again in 1916 and 1922. Now, he and Tom maintained a relationship via frequent correspondence, a lot of which actually still remains. Um, And since Tom was willing to back his bid for presidency, we can safely assume that Tom was the reason why he became senator as well. However, once in Chicago, Pendergast switched his vote to FDR, From the way that Larson and Holston write about it, it sounds as though this was a prearranged plan among city bosses. So, um, why he goes there saying, yeah, I'll I'll vote for you, and then switches his vote, I'm not entirely sure. Prohibition finally ended in December 1933. T.J. McCrory and Pryor once again reopened T.J. Pendergast Wholesale Liquor Co., Honestly, I don't even know why they closed it in the first place, but I guess it was for appearance sake or something. Anyway, according to Larson and Holston, liquor licenses were solely under the control of Pendergast people. They monopolized the industry and became, quote, one of the largest liquor wholesalers in the United States, end quote. So in 1934, a man named Otto Higgins became the new director of the police. If you watch procedural dramas, aka cop shows, like Castle, it's the best. Look it up if you've never heard of it. Also, wow, I never thought I'd have the chance to reference not one, but two of my favorite shows on this up- on this uh, podcast. Anyways, you've heard of the Chief of Police. So it's kind of obvious what that means, right? It's the head honcho of the police in a particular city. And I thought maybe the director is the same. It's just an older name. Maybe it's colloquial and it's only used in certain areas. I looked it up. And I found there's actually a difference between the director and the chief of police. So a director is a civilian that's appointed by the mayor or city council to administrate the city's police force. Much like the chief is. But the chief is actually a cop and can do all the cop things. The director doesn't have that authority. And the director still answers to the chief. Alright, Laura. Why all this information about the police hierarchy? We don't care. Chill out. I'm getting there. Y'all needed to know the distinction. Because in order for the machine to be successful in its connections to illicit activities like drinking, gambling, and prostitution, it had to be allowed to continue without interference from the police. Hence, the director of the police. The director was a man named Eugene. Now, my sources spell it differently. I don't know if it's a spelling error or what, but I have Rupert and Repert. It's either a U or an E. Anyway, Eugene was indicted by a grand jury in 1934 for perjury after the Union Station Massacre. I've decided not to cover that particular incident in this series. That'll be a future episode. In a different series, just to clarify. Also in 1934, a strange new political creature emerged in Kansas City composed of Republicans, members of the National Youth Movement. I could not find any information on them. Um, Some miscellaneous rabbits, Shannon's old supporters, uh, all to oppose the re-election of Mayor Smith, remember Pendergast helped him get elected back in 1930, and to elect instead Mr. A. Ross Hill as the new mayor. This political conglomerate was also supported by the Kansas City Star, which often, if not always, opposed Pendergast and his political machine. So Hill supporters asked Governor Guy Park to send the Missouri National Guard to Kansas City to ensure a fair election, because if you haven't picked up on it by now, Pendergast cheated, like, all the time. But, you guessed it, Park is Pendergast's man, and he refused to send in the Guard. A bunch of, quote, hoodlums, end quote, as Larson and Holston call them, patrolled the town and attacked several people. They even killed four. So this became front-page news throughout the U.S., But Pendergast is ignoring it. He kind of pulls a Trump. He's like, oh, there's good people on both sides. It's at this same time that Tom orders McElroy to fire Eugene. And then Tommy installed Otto as the new director. So Higgins was born in January of 1890 in Illinois. He was the only child of James Higgins and Delia S. Chaucer Higgins. I hope I said that right. I know I had a Delia in another episode and I said it wrong. Uh, His father, James, worked for the Missouri Pacific Railroad Company. The family moved to Kansas City when Otto was a boy. He went to KU, that's the University of Kansas, and then after graduating, he became a reporter for the Kansas City Star. So there's a book that came out, um, it's like a year, maybe two ago, called Frontlines to Headlines by James Hyman. I've yet to read it, but from the description and a review on Goodreads, it sounds like it's a narrative of World War I from Otto's viewpoint as a news correspondent. He wasn't enlisted, but since he was a journalist, he was sent to France in 1918, and he wrote about the soldiers on the front lines. After returning from the war, Otto earned a law degree, passed the Missouri Bar, and worked as a lawyer until he became director in 1934. According to Osley, Higgins was even better at his job than his predecessor had been. Quote, each police captain was required to list accurately all the prostitutes within his district, and this list was used to determine whether these districts collected sufficient protection money for them. End quote. He worked very closely with Pendergast, McGalroy, and a man named Corollo, who I will be covered in the next episode. Another major event of 1934, this is a really big year for Kansas City, Uh, Harry S. Truman became senator in November of 1934. Alright, so everybody knows Truman was the president, but let's talk about him before his presidency. He was born on May 8th in 1884 in Lamar, Missouri. By today's standards of travel, Lamar is about two hours south of Kansas City. It's not really all that far from Joplin. His father's name was John Anderson Truman, and his mother was Martha Ellen Young Truman. He had two brothers, although only one lived, uh, John Vivian Truman, the other brother was stillborn, and one sister, Mary Jane Truman. The family moved to Grand View in 1887, and then to Independence in 1890, and finally to Kansas City in 1902. Like many of the other men mentioned in the story, Truman had several different jobs, including, again, a timekeeper for the railroad, a farmer, a postmaster, a road overseer, and a bank clerk. He joined the Missouri National Guard in 1905 at the age of 21 and served for six years. He fought in France during World War I, reaching the rank of captain. Uh, After the war, he joined the Army Reserves and became a colonel. He tried to re-enlist during World War II, but was denied. In 1919, he married his high school sweetheart, Elizabeth Virginia Wallace, or as she's better known, Bess, She was the daughter of David Willick Wallace and Mage, sorry, um, I think it's Madge Gates Wallace. Bess and Truman had one child together, Mary Margaret Truman Daniel. She was born on February 17th in 1924. Two years before Mary's birth, Truman was elected as a Jackson County court judge. Before that, he had owned a clothing store for two years. He was a longtime GOAT, it's a Pendergast supporter, first under Big Jim and then under Tom. So when I say long time, I mean long time. Um, TJ was definitely the force behind his election. According to an article by John Taylor, he was bipartisan, quote, focused on developing a modern road system for the county, end quote. Um, recommended that a new county hospital be built and supported the building of the new courthouses in independence in Kansas City. Although accused of being a member of the KKK, something the Klan itself proudly laid claim to, Truman always denied such allegations and was largely regarded, um, well regarded and seen as a fair, fair judge. Tom originally supported a lawyer from Kansas City named James Aylward. However, since he didn't want to run, T.J. then picked Truman to run for senator. That is the end of today's portion of this epic tale. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend, rate, and review me on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The more good ratings I get, the easier it will be for others to find me. You can also find me online at homegrownkc.wordpress.com. My website, sorry, that is my website. My email is homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. I'm all over social media as KC. I know times are hard right now, but if you want to support the show, you can do so by subscribing to Patreon.com slash HomegrownKC or RedCircle.com slash HomegrownKC. Here's how it works. You sign up, you create an account, subscribe to the show. You'll be charged that day, and then afterwards you'll be charged on the first of every month. It's only $5 a month. Everything that you give goes back into the show and it pays for the gas while I travel uh, conducting my research. Thankfully, the public library eliminated late fees and fines, or else I'd owe them a few hundred dollars by now. Um, But if you become the supporter, you will receive exclusive access to bonus episodes where I talk to other historians in the area. You'll also receive a shout-out here on the show. So, shout-out goes to Mike, Bjorn, and Linda for your support. Thank you very much. Thank you also goes out to my very talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, who created my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of the show. And last but not least, to local libraries, which enabled me to gather all my research. Research. Thanks for listening.